Many years ago, a friend invited me to be a member of his county league volleyball team. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with County League, uh, it is uh, simply in a given county. Uh, the county leadership sponsors a, a, a league in which if you get a team together, you pay an entry fee, you can play for a season and meet new people. When my friend invited me to join this team, I thought this would be a good thing. Often county leagues are a great place to meet people that don't know the Lord yet, uh, that you'd otherwise never come into contact with. Plus, I like to play volleyball, so I accepted the invitation. I went to the gymnasium for the, the first game that we were going to have. I had not yet met the rest of the team. I saw my friend across the gym. I went over to where he was, shook his hand, and he said, let me introduce you to the rest of the team. Began to go down the line there, and I was feeling fairly hopeful. Uh, not only were these new folk, but uh, some of them were, were tall and athletic looking, like this is going to be a good season. And then we came to Michelle. Now, her real name is not Michelle. I'm just going to give her that name for the sake of the story. Uh, Michelle was not terribly impressive to look at. She was probably all of five foot nine. Uh, she was slight of build, uh, no danger of winning bench press competitions. Uh, she, she, was, she was very... I thought, if there's going to be a weak link on our team, it's probably going to be Michelle. Prepare to cover for Michelle. So we went out, we warmed up, and we went to our first game. And, and I'll just cut to the chase here. Michelle proved to be the absolute, hands-down, best volleyball player on our team. And not just on our team, of any team in the entire league. She could spike the ball from anywhere on the court. If somebody slammed it down on our side, she could dive and get it. She could serve like nobody's business. There's probably still scorch marks on the top of the nets out there where she just barely cleared it on her way to another ace. You see, as it turns out... Michelle was part of an organization perhaps you have heard of before. She had been in the past a member of the U.S. Olympic women's volleyball team. She was devastating on the court. We did well that season. Really well. You know, today I don't think you could make the, the U.S. Women's Olympic Volleyball team if you were five foot nine. But back in the day when, when she played, uh, she did. And it had been a few years since she had been on that team, but you would not have known it. The other people on the other side of the net learned pretty quickly that Michelle was a force to be reckoned with. Sometimes there is far more potential in someone than first meets the eye. If you have a Bible, turn please to Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. In Luke 5, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Luke, of course, tells the story of uh, the birth of Jesus, his ministry, uh, his death, his resurrection. At this point in chapter 5, Jesus has not yet gathered all of his disciples together. Peter, James, and John are with him, perhaps a few others, but the full complement is not there. He has just finished performing an extraordinarily, extraordinary miracle. There's a man that was paralyzed for many years. He's healed him. And coming off of that spiritual mountaintop, Jesus meets someone. 
Let's read the story here. Luke chapter 5, beginning with verse 27. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, otherwise known as Levi Matthew, sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. This is one of my favorite stories. I have a lot of favorite stories. You'll find that out. This is definitely part, part of that, that, that cue. Jesus here walks up to this tax collector's booth. And, and the Bible does not tell us this. Uh, you know, Ellen White re, uh, encourages us to immerse ourselves in the story, to use our imagination. That's the word that she uses, to imagine what it would have been like if we had been there in that scene. And in my mind's eye, as Jesus is, is walking here, he doesn't need to pay his taxes. That's not why he's at the booth. They happen to be in that particular part of town. They come up to the booth, and in my mind's eye, a little trigger goes off in, in Peter, James, and John's mind. Oh, Jesus, no, don't, don't go there. We've got places to go that are much better than this. Don't, don't go there. And then, who knows, maybe Peter saw that look that Peter had seen when Jesus was about to invite him to follow him. And then the alarm bells must have reached a fevered pitch. No, 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 Jesus. Don't ask him. There's no potential here. Let's move on. And of course, anyone who has spent any amount of time in the Gospels or in a church setting, you probably know why it is that they wanted Jesus to move on. Matthew, Levi Matthew, was a traitor. The Roman Empire was the, the leading force in that part of the world at that time, and the Jews were subject to them. They hated that fact, but what they hated even more was when their own countrymen would work for the Romans, and that's what Levi Matthew was doing. He was a Jew that was collecting, in the mind of the Jews, essentially blood money, taking taxes, extorting taxes. Every tax collector, not paid very much, but what you could take on top of taxes, that would go into your pocket. And so Matthew was not just working for the Romans. He was a traitor to his people. Talk about looking at someone as though they're five foot nine about to enter a giant's game. Don't do it, Jesus. Don't do it. And the disciples were not alone in not seeing potential in Levi Matthew. Verse 29 says, Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Pause for just a moment. Can you imagine what you would have seen if you were a scribe or Pharisee there at that particular feast? Ah, look at that grand table. I wonder who paid for that. We did. Look at the food that's spread out here. I wonder who paid for that. Ah, we did. Our tax dollars at work. I wonder who paid for that silver chandelier and the beautiful blankets covering the couches over there. Who paid for all of these people in this room? Jewish tax dollars. That's who. And they can't take it any longer. And basically, essentially, they say to Jesus, Jesus, what do you possibly see in these people? And Jesus answers, verse 31, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To me, there are at least two lessons here. Number one, Jesus sees great potential in each one of us. A few amens up here in the front. I appreciate that. Yes, we're going to have a little meeting with the rest of the folk in the back, try to encourage them to, to understand what's happening, all right? Jesus sees great potential in each one of us. You know, I don't know what your week was like. I don't know what your year has been like. It may be that you might have been tempted to think that perhaps God doesn't see potential in you. If you are feeling that way this morning, you need to know that the exact opposite is true. We are told that even if you were the only sinner on the planet, Jesus would still have come and died just for you. And Jesus looks at you in the morning, and maybe when you don't see too much in the mirror looking back at you, Jesus looks at you and sees someone that is filled with kingdom potential if you would just put your hand in his. And lesson number two, all of this means that we have never laid eyes on someone that Jesus didn't want to save. You've never done it. You know, the person that cut you off in traffic when you were driving home the other day, Jesus wants to save them too. Uh, The person that uh, moves in front of you in the checkout line at the grocery store and you're already 10 minutes late, Jesus wants to die for them too. Uh, The person that has committed or maybe is actively in the process of committing the sin that you feel is at the top of the worst sins ever list, Jesus looks at that person and sees someone that he wants to save. And he asks us to participate with him in that great work. And with that in mind... I want you to take a little imaginary journey with me. Just a thought experiment, all right? When you first hear it, you're going to say, ah, come on, that's not true. Hang with me, humor me here, and let's let's do this little experiment here in in our minds, okay? I want you to imagine that, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, me and, uh, and the elders here at Pioneer, that we read the story of Levi Matthew. And we began to, we, we had this epiphany. We said, you know what? We will not rest until we have invited and secured for certain the attendance of 500 people who have not yet made a decision for Jesus Christ or who are not yet ready for his return. And we are going to have them here by the first Sabbath of January 2024. Now, for the sake of this imaginary, this experiment here, let's just imagine that, that we could find a way somehow to, to actually know that they were going to be here, and let's imagine that we were successful. So, so we went out, and we knocked on doors, and we interrupted people while they're putting gas in their car at the gas station, and in the checkout line at the grocery store, or place of work, wherever it was. We did not stop until we had invited 500 people that needed Jesus, and they all confirmed we will be there on January, on the first Sabbath in January of 2024. Now, knowing in this thought experiment for certain that they would all be here, what would we do in preparation for their attendance? Mm, we might do some of that, wouldn't we? Uh, what would we do the day of? Would, would we do anything different? 
possibly so. Maybe I would alter my, my, my preaching topic. Knowing that there's going to be 500 guests here that are not yet ready for Jesus to come, I, I would probably alter to make sure that this particular group was going, their needs would be met. We would all be on our best behavior, wouldn't we? You're already all on your best behavior. But this would be the bestest of our best, all right? We would be particularly to be good on that day. We would all bring extra food because we're going to have an extra big potluck after church that day. I mean, you would have mountains of food overflowing on the tables there. Uh, some of you might volunteer to be extra greeters at the door. You know, our current greeters do a great job, but you know, 500 people that have never been here before coming on a Sabbath morning, maybe they'll come in the wrong door. We want to make sure they get a handshake or a hug. Welcome to Pioneer. We're so glad that you're here. We might be extra careful to look for people needing to sit down. You're finding a seat in a place that you're not used to sitting in. You know, that could be a challenge sometimes. We want to help them out. And we would greet everyone. Because at Pioneer, we're so large, you don't know who's a guest and who's a member. So you'd have to greet everybody and be kind to everybody to make sure that they, welcome to Pioneer. We're so glad that you're here. I've been a member for 50 years. So have I. Let's find someone else to greet. Okay. Right. <laughs> and if your seat was taken by a guest, you know, your seat, your, your area in, in the sanctuary, right? If, if your seat was taken by a guest, you would smile and be thrilled that they were there. In fact, you might even be proactive and invite them to take your seat if they couldn't find one. And all of us, all of us would be praying. We would be praying mightily for the outpouring of the Spirit of God on us and yes, on all of our guests that they too might somehow come to know Jesus like we do. Oh, the things we would do if we knew that on the first Sabbath of January 2024 we would have so many, many important people right here in our sanctuary. Come back down to earth here from our thought experiment. I have good news. We have done it. We have done it. We have invited them, and they have accepted our invitation, and they will be here. But they're not coming in January of 2024. They are instead going to be here in two weeks. You see, many students who will be at Ruth Murdoch, many students who will be at Andrews Academy, many students who will be right here at Andrews University, many of them will be in one of two camps. Either they will have not yet made a decision for Christ, or perhaps they have made a decision for Christ in the past, but if Jesus came back this afternoon, for whatever reason, they would not be ready. Maybe something's come between them and the Lord. Maybe they've drifted away. Whatever it is, they would not be ready for it. And this school year, in the three institutions that we have the privilege of serving with, there will be hundreds of students that fit this description, and they are coming here in two weeks. I said it a couple weeks ago, and I want to reiterate it now. There are very few churches in the world, Seventh-day Adventist or not, that have the privileges that we do. Nearly every Sabbath of the school year, we have hundreds of people that aren't yet, ready, aren't yet baptized or are not yet currently ready for Jesus to return, and they will attend this church. They will be on this campus, not just once a year, but throughout the school year. Oh, what so many churches would do if they could have that kind of an audience. 
And yet here, we at Pioneer, we have this privilege almost day in and day out throughout any school year. So, knowing that these very important people are coming, knowing that this highly unusual and blessed situation is almost upon us, what should we do? What should we do to help them to be ready for Christ's soon return? Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to get real specific here because I think I have a decent idea of what it is that we need to do. In fact, there are a number of things. They're very specific. They're very practical. In fact, there are enough of these very specific and practical things that each one of us, every one of you that can hear my voice right now, no exceptions, there is something that each of us can and needs to do to best reach our students that are coming two weeks from now. What we need to do is what I'm going to tell you about in part two of my sermon next week. (laughs) So you need to be here. That's awful, isn't it? That's a terrible thing to do. You need to be here. If somebody was sick today, pray over them that they might get better and come and join us next week. If they skip, have them come next week. They need to be here because we're going to cover some very important things. But I will, I, I will give you at least one thing. One thing that I will point out, that if we are to succeed in reaching as many of our students as possible for Christ, this we must do. A story. Many years ago, when I was a young adult, I was in a church within 10,000 miles of here. And uh, it was not my home church I was visiting, and there were two of my friends that were at this church. And, and I walked in there to the lobby of the church. It was a fairly large church, a uh, large foyer there. And I walked in, in, in the foyer, and I saw my two friends and went over, hey, how you doing? Good to see you, et cetera, et cetera. And we're talking away, catching up on things. The worship service had, had just begun, just a few moments earlier. The back doors, the double doors in the back of the church there, they were open. You could hear the music coming out. And uh, my friends and I are chatting there, and something, there's some movement in the corner of my eye. And I look over my friend's shoulder, and here comes a dear saint. Uh, I, don't, I don't know her name. I don't know who she was. She had a smile on her face. But it was not the kind of smile that was about to welcome you to, to her church. It was the kind of smile that I imagine a hawk has before it pounces on a, on a bunny. Okay? And she came over and she, she put a hand on my shoulder and on, on the friend closest to me's shoulder here. And she said, we have a rule here that there is no talking in the lobby once the worship service has started. And it is time, and she began to push us towards the sanctuary doors. And my, my third friend was kind of in front of us, so the wave was pushing him back, right? She said, and it is time for you to find a seat. And I kid you not, with that last phrase, she shoved us into the sanctuary. I can still remember that like it happened yesterday. I remember exactly how I felt. I was not happy. 
I can see the church, I can hear the music ringing in my ears, I can see those double doors, and I can see that hawkish smile on her face. May take a, a thousand years for me to forget that one. Contrast that with the following. And I invite you to keep your Bibles closed and to open your mind as I read. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now... These three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. It's quite a contrast, isn't it, between Madam Hawk and 1 Corinthians 13. And that contrast reminds me of two things. Number one, when it comes to our students, it's not just what we do that matters, but how we do it. You can be as right as rain, but still do it poorly and potentially alienate somebody for the rest of their lives. Say what you want about the church's rule against talking in the lobby when I was a young adult there visiting that church. We could debate about that. But how different it would have been if that dear saint had instead approached us something like this. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? I am Mrs. So-and-so. Tell me your names. We're so glad that you're here today. You know, we've been trying here at our church to bless as many people as possible through our worship services. Our song leaders and our pastor, they they work so hard to prepare good things for us each week. So we've made a little rule that once the service starts, we'd like the lobby to be quiet so as not to disturb the people worshiping inside. You're welcome to continue your conversation down the hall, or maybe you'd like to come and sit with me and my husband. He'd love to meet you. I'm headed there right now. Oh, what a difference that would have made. 
I could have used her for a different sermon illustration. (laughs) Now, I just want to be clear here. I have not heard any horror stories about Pioneer. If they're out there, I don't know about them, all right? I've only heard good things thus far. So I do not tell the story of Madam Hawk as a rebuke. But rather, I share it with us as a reminder to keep doing what you're doing. To keep extending that hand of fellowship to our students. Continue to see our students as God sees them. Filled with potential for the kingdom, whatever their faults might be. May Madam Hawk never invade our lobby, but may instead the love of Christ invade it regularly. And a second observation. Every one of us are teachers. Every last one of us. You know, often when we think of the word teachers, we think of those on this campus or at Andrews Academy or Ruth Murdoch that receive a paycheck for their work. They're the professional educators. They do a fine job. This is, of course, an accurate understanding of the word teachers. But the truth is also that every member of this church is a teacher. We teach either by what we say or what we do. or People just looking at us. All of us are teachers. And teachers, all of us, What you teach here in and through this place is one of the most important, quote, classes that any of our students will ever take. You say, how so? Well, listen carefully. Our our, our educators, for instance, right here on this campus, Andrews University, our educators can, can teach our students what the church ought to be. They can teach our students what the church should be. But only we, all of us here, professional educators, people that are not professional educators, all of us that are here a part of this church family, only we can teach them what the church is now. We are the living examples. We are the campus church. We are the living laboratory of the body of Christ, and therefore, we cannot help but teach what the church currently is to everyone who enters here. What a privilege. What an awesome responsibility. (laughs) An awesome responsibility. Well, I was talking with a colleague of mine recently, not on this campus, on another one of our university campuses here in the North American Division. And they were saying that they had just recently uh, had some research uh, that in certain areas of the country, they'd studied uh, largest groups of young adults, and they discovered that as many as 70%, 70, 70% of them left the church. They were part of it. They went through our schools. They were baptized. They joined it. And then 70% of them left. I think that's unacceptable, and I think we ought to change it, and I think we should start right now. And with that in mind, and in light of the joy and importance of what we are on the cusp of doing here in just two weeks, I plead with you to carefully consider the following. In just two Sabbaths, Hundreds of students who have not yet made a decision for Christ, who are not yet ready for his return, they will be here. And I would ask you, what kind of teacher for them will you be? What kind of teacher for them? My prayer for each of us is that we will not make the mistake that I did with Michelle, the volleyball player. 
and underestimate the great potential that each of our students has for Christ, but that instead each of us will be so filled with the Holy Spirit that in two weeks when our students arrive in full force, as they make their way across campus, maybe from the dormitories or from off-campus housing, or maybe they drive in here with their car, when they come on this campus and they make their way to our doors and they finally walk into this building and your eyes meet theirs, may it truly be a case of love at first sight. Not the world's flimsy kind of love, but the love of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love shining through us into their hearts that they might know Him. It is true. Next week, I'm going to share with you a bunch of practical things that we can do to engage with our students. But without the love of Jesus, those things will fail. But with the love of Jesus, we and Jesus cannot help but succeed. Let us love our students, great teachers, and the great teacher himself wouldn't have it any other way.